0: Good morning Chapel Hill. Great to be with you. Great to be able to pray for and bless our team that's heading down to Berkeley. Some of you uh, might be asking uh, why Berkeley? We thought we'd start with the low-hanging fruit. (laughs) The university that has proven itself most open to conversations on controversial issues and open to talk about spirituality from a Christian perspective. We thought, this is, this is easy pickings. So we send you down there, and we know it'll be easy going for you, but no, we, we are proud of you, and we will be praying for you as we send you there. I, I want to share um, a piece of news that I think you'll be excited about. Uh, as you know, this is an affiliation with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. That's a worldwide ministry. Ravi is a, a renowned um, Uh, speaker, preacher, apologist known around the world. And, uh, And so it's an honor to be a part of this. We've been a part of that in ministry actually for many years with our Oxford Northwest series and so forth, some of you might recall. Well, I have some very exciting news for you. On June 10th, Ravi Zacharias will be preaching from this pulpit. That is a, a terrific opportunity. We're very excited about it. I know that you are, I can tell. And we will be working and praying and preparing. I hope you're going to bring a bunch of friends to be a part of what I know will be a very, very exciting time in our, in our life as a congregation. We continue this morning in our journey through Paul's letter to the Romans. Last, for the last six weeks, we've had rather a languorous stroll through Romans chapter 8. I hope you agreed with me that it was worth the the pause, worth the, the slowing down, because there are so many mountaintop moments in that great uh, chapter of Romans. So we took the, the time with it that it deserved. But in the next three weeks, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. We're going to be covering one chapter a week, which is a lot. One way to help you with that would be to be sure and pick up these, which I guess are going like hotcakes. We might have run out, I don't know. But pick up these... Um, these uh, prayer journals that you can use with your life group and so forth. They're online, They're not on in the back. Online. Oh, that, okay. There the, that, There's the answer. That magical electrical thing. I just never remember that. Yes, they are on something on, called online. So apparently you can get them and not just in paper. Yeah. So anyway, these are available to you and I think they will guide you in your life group and your own personal devotional life. They will be very helpful for you. For those of you who are believers and church folk and so forth, today we're going to be taking a deep dive. If the last six weeks have been an opportunity to just kind of luxuriate in the spirit and just to kind of soak into the goodness and the clarity of these wonderful promises of God. Uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to take a deep dive. This is going to require you to lean in a little bit. You're going to need to work with me a little bit. And so I need head nods that you're all willing to do some some, some work. I'm not seeing a lot of head nods. You willing to do some work? All right. And, and if you're visiting with us, I'll, I'll a kind of a front warning that it's The stuff we're going to be dealing with is a little thick and a little deeper than than you might be comfortable with or be familiar with. Don't worry about that because what I want you to do is to listen for the nature of God, for the heart of God in the midst of all of this. Because I think even if you're kind of new to things of the faith, you'll find something that's very, very encouraging uh, about this great passage of Scripture. So here we go. You know, every few years around here, we, uh, we have done a pictorial directory. Anyone ever been a part of the Chapel Hill pictorial directory? So some of you. That says how long it's been. Um, I remember one time when we did one of those pictorial church directories with all the pictures in it that we got a, a sheet of instructions on what we were supposed to wear, when we were supposed to show up, what time and where, and so all of that stuff. I remember, though, that one of the instructions struck, out, uh, struck me as kind of odd. Here's what the, the letter said. Some poses may include clothing beneath the waist. And I remember thinking, I hope all poses include clothing beneath the waist. I mean, I don't know about other churches, but at Chapel Hill, we want clothing beneath the waist when we're taking pictures of it. Obviously, the brochure meant something different. It meant that if you're going to, you know, your pose might be full length and you ought to dress appropriately. That would have been a good piece of advice for this guy. That is enormously unfortunate that that's going to go into the, the legacy, the annals of that church's history. That's that how they will remember him. That's, that's too bad. Obviously, when when we know the context of those phrases, we understand what it's getting at. But the problem is, if you were to read that one sentence outside of the context of what you're looking at, it might cause some confusion. It might cause a lot of questions to be asked. The same is true for Romans chapter 9. It may be one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. And you cannot understand it unless you understand its context. So I will start by saying I entreat you to be here next week for what is really a, a part two of what you're going to hear today. They go together. You've got to be here. But just as a, a reminder, I want to tell you that, that I want to call, take you back to Romans 8 for j- one more moment. It won't be the last. And I want to remind you that in Romans 8, Paul makes this wonderful assertion. If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? So that's Romans 8, that's back there. And then if we jump ahead to Romans 10, which is next week, we also have this wonderful assertion, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, if God is for us, who can be against us on one side? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord on the other side? It's like the two pieces of bread, and right smack in the middle is chapter 9, and Paul teaches on a doctrine called election. Say, election, There's another word for it. What is that other word? Predestination. Predestination. Say that one. Elections shorter. It's easier to say. So that's what we're going to be diving into. You might, you know, cinch up inside at the thought of a doctrine that you think you know something about. I'll bet you know less about it than you think you do. And I'll bet by the time we're done with this, you're going to find yourself enormously comforted by this doctrine that weaves itself from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Would you join me in asking the Holy Spirit to guide us in this journey? Father, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, would you take this word now and speak it to our hearts that it might be clear, that it might be compelling, that it might be comforting to us and that we will walk away with a sense of gratitude and humility and confidence in your love for us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take you back to uh, the last part of Romans chapter 8, and it's worth uh, visiting one more time. Let me remind you how Paul closed out that epic chapter of Scripture. He said, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." a wonderful passage of scripture, a great assurance that we who are in Christ can never be separated from the love of God, never be separated from the love of God. And yet as we discover when we get to chapter 9 verse 1, it appears that there's something very odd and very disturbing going on. It appears that God's chosen people, who are the chosen people? The Jews, God's chosen people, the covenant people, the elect nation of Israel that God set aside, it appears that they have indeed separated themselves from God's love as reflected in the person of the Messiah, Jesus. And so Paul has some things to say about that, some things that are deeply personal, deeply Emotional for him. Listen to the way he starts. And by the way, these opening words would be the words that you might have used if you were about to testify into a court, in a, in a court setting in the time. So listen to Paul's passion as it comes out here. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. An unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. That means damned to hell. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites And to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God, above all, blessed forever. Amen. Say amen. I hope you notice those last few words. We're not going to spend too much time, but you cannot pass that up without noticing that that is the perhaps clearest assertion that Paul makes in all of his writings about the deity of Jesus Christ, who is the Christ, who is God above all. Blessed forever. Amen. So here's Paul, and he leads out with his heart up till now you hear a, a lot of logical thinking a lot of thinking like a like an attorney as he questions and answers and so forth but here suddenly he leads with his heart doesn't he he's passionate he has great sorrow he has increasing anguish in his heart he says and as you listen to this uh, if you are parents who have Kids that you raised in the Lord. You gave them Bibles when they were in second grade. You sent them to Sunday school. You sent them to youth group. You sent them to Mexico. Yeah, yeah. You, you put them through, through, um, through confirmation. So you did everything you knew to tie them into your covenant family of faith. And then off they went to college and they abandoned ship. They turned their backs on, on the Lord. If you've ever gone through that, and I know many of you have, then you have a sense of the passion and the compassion and the brokenness that Paul feels towards his family of faith. He is a Jew. You remember that, right? He was the Jew of the Jews. I mean, this guy, his, his bona fides, his, 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 uh, his pedigree was unquestioned. And it was heartbreaking to him that his own Jewish people had turned their backs on the Messiah Jesus. In fact, some of them were even complicit in his death. And this raises a question that Paul wants to try to answer. If, in fact, the Jews are God's chosen people, if God set them aside for a particular purpose, the purpose of which was to bless the world, to redeem the world, if God has chosen them and they have turned their back on that call, well, then is the call of God weak? Is the call of God ineffective? Is God's call not as powerful as we thought or hoped it might be? And Paul answers that in the, in the next part of the passage. I'm going to summarize the text. Here's what Paul goes on to say. It is not as though the word of God has failed. He says he's quick to defend the Lord. God's word, God's call has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. And then he gives an example. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, you hear it, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul admits it's true. Israel has indeed turned their back on the Lord, it appears. But he would say, but there is an Israel within the Israel. There's an Israel within Israel. Just because you are a fleshly descendant of Abraham, it does not make you a child of the promise, he says. By the way, John the Baptist said the same thing. Jesus said the same thing. Our daughter Rachel, when she was in high school, she was with a friend. They were in the lunchroom, and a boy walked up to them, I think trying to pick a fight. And Rachel reported that he said, are you, are you guys Christians? Rachel said, yes, she was. Her friend quickly replied, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Methodist. <laughs> and Rachel thought she must be confused, and so she tried to, to school her a little bit on the fact that Methodists typically are Christian. She said the, 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 the longer she got to know the girl, the more she realized her statement was true. She was a Methodist, but she was not a Christian. And it is possible, don't you, don't you know? There are Presbyterians who are not Christians. Those who love their faith, their background, their heritage, their denomination, their structure, their way of worship. They love all of that, but they don't necessarily know and love the Savior who is the heart of all of that. You can be a denominationalist and not have a clue of who Jesus really is, unfortunately. And and Paul says the same thing is true for the Jews. He says there are a lot of Jewish folks who are Jewish in name only, but they are not children of the promise, not the Israel within the Israel. That raises another question then. How do you become the child of the promise? How how do you become those who are the the subset within the greater whole? Was it because this was the group that was particularly good? This was the group that was particularly obedient? Is that how you become children of the promise? And Paul is quick to respond. He says, no, verse 10, though they were not yet born. He's talking about Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad... In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. When you heard those words, Esau I hated, that were spoken by God, how many of you, does that make you cringe inside a little bit? Yeah, I, I heard some gasping in the last service when I said that. It's such stark language, isn't it? Esau I hated. Did God really hate Esau? Let me set your heart at ease a little bit by saying that it is not literally the case that God is saying, I loathed Esau. I hated Esau. This is a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration that is used to make the point of God chose one over the other. And, And we have confidence in believing that, that this is true because there's another person in the New Testament who used this very kind of language. You might know of him. His name is Jesus. Jesus, in a teaching in, in Luke, once said these words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now do you think that Jesus is saying you literally need to loathe to reject to hate your own wife, your own parents, your own children? Of course not. Because there are other teachings where Jesus makes it very clear that you should honor your father and mother. You should adore your spouse. You should treasure your children. No, what Jesus is saying, it's a, it's an exaggeration used to make the point. You must choose me first. I must be your priority. If you want to be my disciple, not even the most precious of relationships can come before me. You must choose me first. It is, a, it is an exaggeration of choice. That's exactly what's going on in this text. Paul says that God chose Jacob instead of Esau to be the, a father of the Jewish nation. And his choice had nothing to do with anything that they had done, either good or bad. And how do we know that this is not based upon their behavior? When did the choice take place before they were even born? when they're in their mommy's tummy? he had already made the call He had made the call before that now it's possible that Esau was beating up on his little brother in utero, but we don't think that's what happened. What he is saying is that God chose Jacob for his plan because God chose Jacob. God chose Jacob because Jacob was the one he wanted to choose. God gets to do that. God gets to do that. Now, the rejoinder, the response that, we've, that we often will have, especially we Americans, is that's not what? Fair. Yes, we are the that's not fair society. We are all about that's not fair. It's not fair that God would choose one over the other. Everyone gets an equal chance. Everyone gets a participation trophy. It's not fair. And so we keep reading. And as we keep reading, because he understands that this is the accusation that's going to be raised, I want you to listen for the the heart of God in the middle of this teaching, okay? There's a word that's going to come out. I want you to pay attention. Here we go. He continues on. What shall we say then? He's anticipating a problem. He says, is there injustice on God's part? In other words, is God unfair? Is that what you're going to say? And he responds, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. What then does the text say is the reason behind God's sovereign election? What is the reason that God makes the decision to save some? What is it? Mercy! Say it! It appears again and again, mercy, mercy, mercy. He reads it in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. You might expect that the second phrase would be a contrary phrase like, and I will uh, will bring judgment upon those whom I'm displeased with or something like that. But that's not what he says. He doubles down. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Mercy and compassion. Do you realize that the doctrine of election in the Bible is always spoken of in positive terms? It is always spoken of as God's gracious gift of mercy and of compassion. The election often gets a bad rap. It, it portrays God as capricious or unloving or unfair or mean-spirited. But right here, right in the midst of the chapter on the doctrine of election, along with Ephesians 1 we discover that God's motivation behind all of this is His incredible, gracious, longing to save mercy. And yet many people struggle still with this election idea. Why is that? Why is it so unsettling for some? I would suggest it is because of this. It is entirely God-centric. The doctrine of election, the idea of God-choosing, it is entirely God-centric centric, and we don't like that. We want to have something to do with a a part to play in how things turn out. We want to have a part to play in our own salvation. We want to be the ones who decide whether or not we follow God. We want it to be our choice and not God's choice. That would make us happier. We want to be in the driver's seat. But the central principle that underlies in this passage is one that can sometimes be hard for us to swallow. Here it is, the absolute sovereignty of God. The absolute sovereignty of God. We have a God who has the supreme right to rule. He is a just and loving God who created all things. He retains absolute authority over his creation, even though we resent it, even though we question it, even though we doubt him, even though we wonder if he's really, really, really being fair. God is sovereign. He can make that call. And Paul understands that objection too, so he has an illustration that comes later on in the chapter. I won't read it. I'm just going to sum it up for you. Here's what Paul says. He says, for those of you who are second-guessing God, those of you who are standing in judgment over Him, those of you who, who are trying to tell Him how He ought to carry out His affairs trying to tell him what is right and wrong, what is fair and unfair. He said, could I just show you how silly that is? And he says, imagine this, a lump of clay. He says, can you imagine a lump of clay who tries to tell the potter what to do? How silly would that be? How stupid would that be? Hey, I think you're trying to make me into a cup. I don't want to be a cup. I want to be a plate. I want to be a plate like that guy. Stop what you're doing. Make me into a plate, not a cup. Yes, it's ridiculous, right? I know I need to pound that down a little bit. It's ridiculous. Paul says that when we try to tell our holy, powerful God what we ought to be doing, What is fair and what is not fair, when we try to boss God around, it is this ridiculous. We big lumps of clay. This chapter 9, it's kind of an enigma, it's a mystery, because it's got all kind of stuff woven in there. We discover a God who's merciful, a God who wants to save, a God who forms an entire people around him, a, a nation around him, And draws them into relationship for that purpose. And yet we also see at the same time a God who is God. A God who has the right to call whom he will. A God who can save whom he will. A God who does not have to answer to any human being for his decisions. Whether we are comfortable with them or not. Whether we think they are fair or not. He is God. He is the arbiter of what is fair. Just, loving, and merciful. Who are we to judge him? I remember when Rachel, my daughter, was two years old. She was, <laughs> she was a very strong-willed two-year-old. And uh, I remember one time that we were in a place that was kind of unsafe, and Rachel began to wander off away. And I called out to her. I said, Rachel, stop. Come back to Daddy. I remember this. She, she stopped. She lowered her head. And then she started doing the Tim Conway old man shuffle. It was pure rebellion. I am not coming back. I'm just going to pretend I don't hear you. And she just kept going in the direction she wanted to go. So I did what good parents do. I swung around in front of her. I squatted down in front of her. I took her by her arms and I said, Rachel, when daddy says come, you come. She looked me right in the eyes and she said, ducks sleeping. That was the first time I'd ever had that kind of a response from her. <laughs> I had no clue what she was talking about. As it turns out, there was a variation on that theme that continued in the weeks to come. It became goats sleeping. It became horses sleeping. Then I figured out what was going on. When she said ducks sleeping, she was saying, I'm uncomfortable because you are telling me what to do. So I'm going to divert your attention by changing the subject. duck sleeping. This is a ploy that we adult humans try to, to take on as well. We, we don't like our Heavenly Father telling us what to do. We don't want to come when we are called by Him. We don't like the fact that, that He is God and we are not. In fact, we want to be God. Could I remind you, back to Romans chapter 1, that is the presenting sin of Romans 1. It's the sin of idolatry. We want to remove God from his throne and instead place something else, including ourselves, on that throne. We want to be God. We don't want him to do. And when he, we, we want to call the shots. We want to be in charge. And when God says, come back here, when God says, I want you to redirect your course, we tend to drop our heads and shuffle our way into rebellion. We try to change the subject. We want to be our own God's. And we are, in fact, beloved, we are creatures, not gods. Every time we try to be our own gods, we botch up life. We botch it up. And we botch up the world, too. We've been doing it from the beginning of our sinful human existence. Every time we try to be our gods, our own gods, we do things like the Holocaust and the killing fields and American slavery and ISIS. We are lousy gods. We don't know what is right. We don't know what is fair. We don't know what is loving. Even though we insist on standing in judgment over God. The true God has honored us and, and delight, dignified us through Jesus Christ. He has called us to be his children. He has invited us into a relationship with him. These are the, the dominant truths of the gospel. And they are the stories that we love to hear again and again. God loves us. God sent his son for us. He has redeemed us. He's adopted us. The fact is, though, and the part that is a a something is, we are still creatures. God is God alone. He is sovereign. He is above all and through all and in all. Above him there is no other. We approach him not because we have the right to, but because he invites us to. We talk to him not because we are equals, but because he starts the conversation. We call Him Father not because we have been honoring, dutiful, loving children, but because through our brother Jesus we have been adopted into His family. And here's the punchline of this chapter. We are saved not because we made a decision for God, but because God made a decision for us. Many American Christians worship at the altar of decisionism. We want to think that we are saved because we decided to be saved, which of course puts our salvation in our own hands. Let me ask you this, whom would you rather entrust your salvation to, God or yourself? Paul's teaching is that we are saved because God has chosen irrevocably, irretrievably, irreversibly, God has chosen to save us. Now, if you were raised as I was in American evangelicalism, this might be new for you. Because we have been raised to believe the words of that old gospel tune. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. I made the decision to follow Jesus. It's my decision. We Americans want to be the captains of our own fate. But Paul says, listen, God decided for you long before you decided for him. And just in case you want to discount Paul because you think he's a grumpy old single guy, could I remind you of another person who spoke of this again and again? It was Jesus Himself. You take a look, especially in the Gospel of John, and see how much God, uh, Jesus, talks about this. In in John six alone, he says the same thing three times. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Do you hear that? No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. So what do we do with this doctrine? What good is it? It can be misused, actually. I mean, there are many improper responses to the doctrine of election. One might be spiritual arrogance. That's where we say, "Ah, I'm in the club and you're not. And you spend time figuring out who's in and who's out. You have no idea who's in and who's out. It is not for you to call. It is God's call only. And by the way, if the thief on the cross teaches us anything, it is that God's not done drawing folks in until the very last moment. So spiritual arrogance is not appropriate. Spiritual laziness can be another improper response. In other words, I'm in the club. I don't need to worry about anything. I can live any old way I want to. I can behave any old way I want to because I am among the elect. There's plenty in Scripture that says, do not presume upon the grace of God. You are playing with fire when you do that. And then the improper, another improper response might be spiritual anxiety. What if I'm not saved? What if I'm not called? What if I'm not chosen to be among the elect? The, John the, Calvin, who was uh, one of the great reformers and he's one of the fathers of our reform movement, he said there really are only three proper responses to this doctrine. Gratitude, humility, and assurance, or as he said, freedom from fear. Gratitude, humility, and assurance. First of all, gratitude. When it suddenly strikes you that out of the billions of people that have ever existed, it strikes you, God, you chose me. You saw me. You desired to save me. What else can you respond with other than incredible gratitude, where you cry out to Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, Thank you for seeking me. Thank you for saving me out of my desperate state. Gratitude. A second appropriate response to this doctrine is humility. When you realize that God chose to save you for no other reason than that he wanted to and that it had nothing to do with your goodness, nothing to do with your deservedness, that is a very humbling thing because we really want to play a part in it, don't we? The problem is it flies in the face of American religion. Because one of the two primary tenets of American religion are these. We are all good people, and everybody goes to heaven. We are all good people, and everybody goes to heaven. I've never been to a funeral where someone got up and said of the deceased, you know, he was a pretty awful guy. He's probably in hell, and he deserved it. You ever, you ever heard that? I have, you might have, they might have thought it, but no one's ever gotten up and, and said that at a, at a funeral. American religion, which is primarily preached on the Hallmark Channel, by the way, says that everybody is good, everybody goes to heaven, and everybody becomes an angel when they get there. None of this is true. You'll read the Bible from beginning to end. We discover that we are not good. We are hopelessly broken. Our inclinations are not holy. Our instincts are not pure. We deserve judgment. And despite this, God, in His grace, chooses to save. How can we respond with anything but humility? The final proper response to this doctrine is assurance, freedom from fear. If salvation is my responsibility, if my salvation depends upon my confession of faith and my obedience, how do I know I'm secure? If I gained my salvation by what I did, then surely I can lose my salvation by undoing the things that I did right. But the doctrine of election says that since God is doing the saving and not me, then my salvation is secure. Put it a different way. If an all-powerful God has decided to save me, who's going to stop him? Or, as Paul put it in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? There is another question that this doctrine raises, though, and it's a very important one for us to honestly face. And that is the question, well, how do I know that he is for me? If what you say is true, if this doctrine that you expo- exposit here is true, how do I know if I'm saved? How, how do I know that God is for us? Well, there is a, a, a proof that is beyond a shadow of the doubt. And uh, I'm going to cheat in order to share it with you. It actually comes next week. That's why you've got to come back. But, there, but I, wanna, I don't want any of you leaving here uh, angst, in angst about your own security before the Lord. So I'm going to give you a, a peek ahead of. We, we jump to Romans 10 for just a moment. Romans 10, 9, and 10. Here's what Paul says if, we confess, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. It's not you might be saved or there's a good chance that you'll be saved or take a look at the fine print before we settle on anything. He said if, if you have a true confession of faith, not just with lips, not just words, and if you believe the, the truth that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and has taken away your sin, if that is who you are, then he says you may be assured the promises you will be saved. That is assurance that comes when we know that it's God who does the choosing, God who does the saving. A little more than 31 years ago, I fell in love with a girl named Cindy Manley. And um, I was kind of smitten from the, from the start. I remember going over to the PLU library and trying to track her down to... Um, to drop the love bomb on her. (laughs) It didn't go well. (laughs) In fact, it, it scared her to death and she ran the other way and I thought, I have blown that. I have blown that. I will never forget the moment a few months later though where I got a phone call from her and I have never been happier to have been chosen by someone in my life. Election, the doctrine of election, is the same kind of gift for believers. It's the wonderful discovery that God knows you. He's known you from before the foundation of the earth. That God loves you. That God has chosen to save you. How wonderful is that? And if God is for you, who can be against you? God, thank you for that incredible seeking love. Thank you for being, as one poet described it, the hound of heaven who once he has our scent will not let us go. He tracks us down. Thank you for saving us not because of who we are or what we have done but in fact in spite of all those things simply because you choose to save us. Thank you that we can have the assurance of our salvation. Thank you that the appropriate response is humility before you and deep, deep gratitude. We're so grateful for a God who sought us out.